Continuing in our series of messages on the holy subject of God the Holy Spirit. It is our desire to equip the saints with confident knowledge of God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. It is our desire that you be able to answer men who would ask you what is the truth regarding the Spirit of God and His work? It is our aim to equip you so that you would not be unduly troubled by many who have a false doctrine or an imbalanced doctrine of this person of the Holy Trinity so that you may be able to give an answer biblically to those who show confusion in their conversation that they may escape some of the deadly errors into which they've fallen it is further our desire that you who are strangers to grace and do not know Christ and his saving power may come to know the working of the Spirit of God in your own soul beyond that working that's ordinary in the preaching of the gospel, beyond just the working by which he convicts of sin and stirs you to be moved and to feel the weight of the power of the kingdom to come, but Further, that he may so deal with you that he brings you out of darkness into light, changes your character, turns you from your love of sin to the love of righteousness and liberates you from death. Our goals are high and vast and we see and feel our debt and dependence on the Spirit of God even to be able to deal with the least of these matters. Again, I confess to you this material in many ways is far higher than I can handle and even as I understand the Bible on it I find myself coming face to face frequently with an essence with an, an aspect of this truth that transcends my understanding and my ability to teach it but with that in mind we do desire to unfold as best God will allow us what the Bible teaches regarding the Holy Spirit. And again, brethren, let me appeal to you to remember that of all times for us to be negligent or lazy in our hearing, we should not consider this to be one of those times. If there were ever a time that we should come to the worship of God and to the hearing of preaching expecting someone else to do all the labor and not entering into fervent prayer and not giving our hearts to it, it would not be here when we're dealing with such matter as the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The failure of preaching and teaching on this subject has left our nation at an utter loss, filled with confusion at best, and in some cases, damning error. How much more if we know what we're talking about, but we have to preach it in the context of an unreceptive 
fleshly congregation. So I charge you who are here, who have thought that this lack of sleep has affected you and expected it to affect you and therefore have committed yourself to being affected by it, to cancel all such thoughts and give yourself now to the preaching of the Word of God. I need your help. This is matter that's difficult enough in itself and on top of the very active work of the devil himself, I need the support and the help of God's people in preaching it. With that in mind, again, let us turn to the Lord together in prayer. Lord, I would pray that now you would open our hearts and fill our minds and deal with us as your children. O oh Lord, I confess that I have not always resisted the dealings of the devil in seeking to distract me and to lay me aside in his temptations. So, Lord, forgive the sins of this heart so that I may deal faithfully with the word. Forgive the negligence in study, whatever I've left out in my ignorance, whatever I've added in my ignorance. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would keep it from coming out that you would keep it from hurting the minds and the understanding of your people and those who hear me. And then I pray for these who would be prone to growing easy in this dull day that they may know your presence in the preaching of the word. Lord, come now in the name of him for whose sake you have forgiven our sins, in whom you have promised us all good things, for whose sake you have promised the Spirit to those that ask. We ask for him about whom we now seek to preach and to learn. Lord, visit us now from on high and make us to know that what we've heard, we've heard it from God. Deal with us in great grace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. We have established, I believe, biblically, the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit. He is a person and he is God. We have further dealt with his particular relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself in those three grades of anointing by which Christ was anointed by the Spirit of God in his incarnation in his baptism and commissioning, and in his ascension. Further, we have established the place of the Holy Spirit in relationship to Christ as to its uniqueness, its necessity, and its concurrence. And then we've summarized all that by dealing briefly with the doctrine of the purpose of the Holy Spirit in glorifying Christ. And we saw in John's Gospel, chapters 15 and 16, where the central theme of the coming of the Spirit would be that he would glorify Christ. He would bear witness to Christ. This morning, continuing in our study and using as our springboard text and as the focus of our thinking, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, I want us to enter the second large area of our study. We've considered the person, the identity of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? Now, 
let us consider the vast subject of his work. What does he do? We know who he is. He is God. He is the person, the third person of the holy triune God. But what does he do? What should you expect when the Holy Spirit does his work? What should you feel? What you should you see? What can you speak about confidently regarding the work of the Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit of God an electric current? And if he's doing his work, should you feel tingles up your spine? And if you don't feel them, should you then assume God the Spirit is not present? Is the Holy Spirit primarily interested in our feelings? Is his ministry, as opposed to the ministry of Jesus and the apostles in preaching and teaching, is his ministry primarily that of just giving us a warm fuzzy? So that when the Holy Spirit is present and working, the result will be you just have a good sense about things. You just sort of feel happy. Or more, an elated spirit that cannot hold itself in and in fact should not be expected to control itself but to gush forth in any form of wild expression conceivable as an expression of that which is felt so strongly within. Is that the work of the Spirit and is that the central aspect of the work of the Spirit? No. That is not the central aspect of the work of the Spirit. He often is working when there are no chilbots. He often is working when there is no elation. Sometimes the very essence of the work of the Spirit is to bring men low rather than to lift them up. In fact, in order to prepare men for God's blessing, he must bring them low. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. But every person whom the Spirit meets is proud. How does he get him in a position where God's blessing and grace may be poured upon him? He humbles him by the conviction of sin. He deals with him in truth. He's the Spirit of truth. And so we want to focus upon his work. What does he do? And this morning, I've simply divided the sermon into two parts. And we are just going to scratch the surface and continue to plow through this, in many cases, fallow ground in order to come to some conclusions. First of all, we want briefly to show the overarching purpose of his work. Now, it's related to what we saw in the glorification of Christ. But I want to become more specific in certifying the biblical doctrine of the overarching purpose of the work of the Holy Spirit. And then second, to make a definition or a working definition of his work. To attempt in one statement to summarize the work of the Holy Spirit and then break that definition down in our exposition part by part to focus upon his labor and his work. In the first place then, follow with me through some texts of Scripture as we consider the overarching purpose of the Spirit's work. Briefly stated, the overarching purpose of the Spirit's work is this, to apply Christ to God's elect. To apply Christ to God's elect. Now, I put it in those very brief and summary terms 
We can expand that almost infinitely. But that boils it down. The Spirit's work in its overarching purpose is essentially to apply Christ to God's elect. Now, there's a ministry of the Spirit in the world that are not God's elect. But that ministry of the Spirit in the world that are not God's elect is almost explainable as a means of contrast between what is the result when he doesn't do his saving work of applying Christ and what happens when he does. There are those out there who perish, although they've heard the gospel preached, they have felt the movings of God upon their souls. They have tasted things relating to the kingdom of heaven. They have been partakers of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to some degree. But when you look at a saint, you can't stop with that definition of his work. It goes much further. You see Christ actually bound to the saint and applied to the saint. You see all the results of that. By way of contrast, then you can glorify God for such power that left undone would leave everyone in the pit of hell. You see, the man that never, never is saved, though he's had all the human means applied to him, He's a standing monument to what it takes to save a sinner. It's not enough to tell him the truth. It's not enough to plead with him. It's not enough to cry. It's not enough to use gimmicks. It's not enough to be nice. It's not enough to be a good example. He's filled with good examples. The the whole universe tells him that God made him, but he ignores that. His heart is pricked in its conscience. He knows that the things he's practicing are wicked. He knows that they are worthy of death. His conscience bothers him when he sits in a church building among Christians like us and he hears the gospel preached. He feels that everything that's preached is directed straight to him. He wonders if the preacher is clairvoyant because God is dealing with matters that nobody's supposed to know but he's in her heart. The Spirit of God deals with him and he goes his way unconverted. And we stand in amazement and wonderment. How can it be? How can men resist such influence, such obvious truth? We see it. It makes all the sense in the world to us. The gospel is logical. It's rational. It's wise. It's awesome. It's wonderful. The law of God is beautiful. We love it. We delight in it. Why doesn't everybody else? And especially those that sit here and hear what we hear. Well, the difference is in the work of the Holy Spirit applying Christ to God's elect and making the change and making all the difference. There becomes a big gulf fixed between the one and the other. A big wall. You cannot cross that gulf. You would like to be able to go over where they are and bring them across to where you are. You can't do it. That's the work of God the Spirit. And if he doesn't do that work, there's no... There's no eternal hope for those people. But essentially, he has been sent into the world, and the highest goal of his work is to apply Christ. Now let's look at some texts of Scripture that paint this picture. And we're just going to look at them, see the statement, and understand that we're not grabbing this out of the air. First of all, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We've already read 2 Corinthians 3. We'll refer back to it in a bit. 
But I want to show you the biblical doctrine of the, of the, the Spirit applying Christ to the church. Ephesians 4.15 The contrast is set here between a people who are so immature in their faith and so shaky and so unstable and so untaught and so unfamiliar with the Spirit of God and so out of touch and out of pace with the church that they are vulnerable to every wind of doctrine. A breeze of doctrine blows by and they're led off to it. They cannot stay stable. The contrast between those in verse 14, no longer children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, is in verse 15. But, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplies, according to the working in due measure of each several part, makes the increase of the body unto the building up of itself in love. Verse 15 essentially tells us that in speaking the truth in love, in that context, we are growing up in all things into Christ. We are literally growing up into Christ. There is a work that's going on in us in the context of the work of the Spirit in which we are growing up into Christ. Now let me show you why this is the work of the Spirit. Look back up at the first part of chapter 4. Verse 3. Giving diligence to keep the unity of the what? Of the Spirit. In the bond of peace. There's one body. Now that's the body in verse 15 that's growing up into the head. There's one Spirit. That's the Spirit who baptizes into that one body. Even as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism by which you were made a part of this body. One God and Father of us all. It's not contrary to what the Muslims are saying and what the Times Union on the front page printed and gave place to weeks ago uh, that the Muslims believe that they believe in the same God we do. And now they're passing that kind of garbage off on the Western mind who's unfamiliar with what they really believe and they're make, pretending that their God Allah Allah is the Arabic word for God. And so they, the Western Muslims use the term God and it's kind of disarming to all of us Christian Americans who've heard our politicians use the name God. No, there's one God and Father of all. Now, the Muslim has no right to say that, that his God's the same one as this God, because this God is connected with one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one body, one baptism. Not two lords. Not two prophets. Not an infinite number of them. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then he deals with the graces given unto the ministry. And we already established last week that these ministerial graces were given by Christ to the church by means of what? The unmeasured granting and deposit and endowment of the Holy Spirit. 
So we have the unity of the Spirit in the body, Christ by the Spirit giving gifts to that body, so that by those gifts given through the Spirit to the body, the body is vitally in union with Christ and growing up into Him. What's the Spirit doing? He is causing us by His work within us in the ministry and context of the truth of gifted men preaching. He is growing us up into Christ. He is applying Christ to us in a vital, increasing, experimental union. Then turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Remember, we're just reading the text and trying simply to state the significance of the text as it bears upon our thesis this morning. The Spirit is applying Christ to us. Romans 6. Verse 5. If we have become united with him, in speaking of Christ, in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Look back in verse 3. Are you ignorant? that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. Now, by what were we baptized into Christ? And the central focus of this passage is on the spiritual baptism of the work of the Spirit in uniting us to Christ. It has implications, I believe, of what to water baptism. I don't think you can so remove water baptism from the text that you didn't, wouldn't use this text to define the significance of water baptism. I think the essence of the text is spiritual baptism. But that's why water baptism, we do it the way we do it, because it's a good answer for this picture. It's a proper symbol for this work. We have been buried with Christ by the Spirit, baptizing us into his death. And therefore, since we were united with him in his death, we have promise of new life. And that is evidenced by the fact that we're walking in new life already. The Spirit, Christ in us. So he applies Christ to us in uniting us with him. Notice as well that this union with Christ begins at the outset of the Christian life. It is not something that happens sometimes subsequent to conversion. This is not an additional second blessing. The baptism of the Spirit is essential to salvation. It's part and parcel of the application of the redemptive merits of Christ and benefits of Christ to the saints. You see that? You were baptized into Christ. That's why you have hope of the resurrection. When? When you believed. When the Spirit applied him. That's Romans 6. Now then, turn to chapter 11 of Romans, verse 17. An analogy here by the Apostle Paul, but the essence of this analogy is that that which is the the stock and root and source of the life of the people of God, that which 
constitutes the body of the people of God in their unity in life in Christ, there were we were grafted into that. It's a living picture. It's the picture of a growing vital tree into which were grafted broken off branches who were not living and now in their engrafting into the living tree they, they have life and they bear fruit as evidence that they're part of the living tree. So when the tree is alive and sends the sap up that produces fruit, if you have a limb hanging there that doesn't produce fruit, you have a question either that the limb is vitally connected to the tree or that somehow the limb has lost its life and the, the sap isn't getting to it. But when you see fruit popping off, popping off of a limb, you say, that limb belongs to this tree because it's doing what this tree produces on its limb. And this is what verse 17 of Romans 11 tells us. If some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and did become partaker with them of the root of the fatness of the olive tree, there's a grafting in of a dead branch into a living, fruitful, rich, fat, productive olive tree. And the symbolism here may be applied to the principle of a Christian, of a, of a sinner, being grafted into Christ and being made a partaker of Christ, his body, showing evidence of it in the fruit of his life. That language is the language of the work of the Holy Spirit grafting us into Christ. This is a vital, very real experience. It's not objective, it is subjective. It is not simply forensic, it is actual and real. You've been made alive together with Christ. You've been grafted into Christ. Now turn back to chapter 8 of Romans, verse 29. Another thing that the Spirit is doing in applying Christ to us is seen in this verse. For whom God foreknew, verse 29 of Romans 8, he also foreordained or predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God has done a work that will result in the ultimate conformity of my personhood and character to that of Christ. The Spirit is laboring to make you like Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. And if you don't believe that that's what it, it's the work of the Spirit, then you haven't read the first 28 verses of Romans 8. The whole thing is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We live by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. We're sons of God. We have Christ applied to us by the Spirit. So Romans 8, 29 further shows us a picture. We are conformed to Christ, made like Him by the work of the Spirit. Then turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We look at another image. The image of, of putting on a coat, almost. Or actually, it's like putting on another coat of skin. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. How do you do that? How do you put on Christ? And notice the connection. When you were baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. 
when the Spirit baptized you into the body of Christ. You put on Christ. The Spirit is grafting you into Christ, growing you up into Christ, conforming you to Christ, putting Christ on you. You're seen as putting Him on something that ordinarily wouldn't be expected to have Him on. But the Spirit's done a work. And it's not just putting Him on, taking Him off, putting Him on. It is an engrafting of Christ on you, in you, into you, so that you and He become one. The Holy Spirit doing His work. And then finally, the text we've alluded to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And, and brethren, this is just a smattering of text, but to try to collate or draw together some of the images that the New Testament uses of this very vital working that's going on invisibly and mysteriously, the thing that explains to you who are not saved what these Christians are doing here. Why they're here every time the doors are open and are glad to be here. Why they love to worship God. Why they've gotten rid of sins. Why they're dealing against sin and hating sins and mortifying sin and learning to pray and enjoying Christ and serving Him and loving others more than themselves. All that's a result of the work of the Spirit. Verse 12, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12. And I'll tell you this verse is very difficult to answer by those who consider baptism of the Spirit a second blessing. Very difficult to handle. Because they would separate Christians from one another. They would say there are Christians who got it and there are Christians who ain't got it. Hardly a person in this church that's been a Christian or a professing Christian for any length of time and has had anything to do with Christianity and has had any input with any evangelicals would say he hadn't run across this. All over Albany, all over the Capital District, you're going to meet people in the grocery store who are happy and nice and you're going to start talking to them and you're going to finally say, are you a Christian? And they're going to say, yes! And they're going to say, praise the Lord. And you're going to say, great, great. And you're going to have a conversation. But somewhere between the time you start the conversation and the time it ends, they're going to say, do you have the Holy Spirit? Or have you been baptized in the Holy Ghost? Or do you got it? And you're going to be a little bit perplexed if you don't listen real carefully now as to how to answer that. You know how to answer that? Absolutely. Amen. Praise the Lord. I sure do. Have you had the baptism? I sure have. Have you? Yeah. Well, isn't that great that God in Christ has made us one with Him through the preaching of the gospel and granted us faith and repentance that we may lay hold on Christ, have our sins laid aside, and have the Spirit of God living in us. Oh, no, no. I'm not talking about that. Well, where did you get that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Who taught you this? Be a little bold at that stage. You've gone with him. You've agreed with everything he said. Then he said, no, no, I mean, I mean the, the, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You know, and then he starts giving his look of sorrow for you. He begins to pity you. You're probably a Baptist, aren't you, he'll say. That's not hypothetical. That's happened over and over again. What church do you go to? We, this church has a reputation among some of those brethren already just because most Baptists can't even answer the question in our day. And some of you have answered them, and they now know what church it is that's disseminating just what they consider to be inadequate doctrine. We don't preach the full gospel, they're saying. Verse 13 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians says something that I think is very difficult for them to deal with. For in one spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether bond or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. If you want to use the terminology of baptism in the Spirit, you better make sure you use it from the Bible 
And the Bible says, if you're baptized in the Spirit, you were all baptized. All the people of God were baptized into one Spirit, or they're not in the Spirit. If you want to have a second blessing, change your terminology, because baptism in the Spirit would not fit this terminology. The Bible use of the baptism of the Spirit is engrafted into Christ, putting on Christ, being made increasingly like Christ, breaks the power of sin, brought into conformity with Christ gradually and increasingly into one body. Now, with that background, as to the overarching purpose of his work, can you remember Christ saying, he'll speak what he hears, he'll take of mine and give it to you, he'll bear witness of me, he'll glorify me. As you see that picture of the overarching purpose of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in applying Christ, let us summarize it by the way Calvin did. He said, The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually binds himself to us. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually binds himself to us. That's Calvin's way of defining this principle of the application of Christ to the saints. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ, who sends him, sends him bond, binds himself to us. Again, there's this glorious mystery. It is Christ binding you to himself by his Spirit. It is the Spirit binding you to Christ by, by virtue of Christ's work. It is the Father sending the Spirit. It is Christ sending the Spirit. It is the, the Spirit making the Father precious to you. It is the Spirit giving you a spirit of adoption whereby you cry out by Father. It is the Spirit that brings Christ to be precious to you by giving you faith and sight and life. Which one's doing what and what kind? God, the Trinity, doing His work in all of His glorious persons in such a way as to make it a wonderful economy that makes us do nothing but worship. And it makes me want to study all the more to learn it more. And the texts of Scripture are full of this kind of material that you hardly ever hear taught or preached. And I would say to you, there's much to be learned and enjoyed in this. Well, look at a couple of more verses as we sum up this first principle of the overarching purpose of the Spirit and see how it's pulled together. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The last verse of 2 Corinthians puts this Trinitarian picture before us. Verse 14 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's just, let's don't read what's in between. Let's make this a whole sentence. Let's look at the last uh, phrase. Be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Well, there's, some, there's another subject to the sentence. Let's add that. And the love of God be with you all. And the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. However, that's not the way the grammar lays it out. The grammar lays it out. All three together be with you all. And the reason the grammar lays it out that way, without putting the be with you all after each one, is so to divide them up that they're distinct that you can have one or two without the third, is that you cannot have one or two without the third. It is always all three of these benefits, these 
broad, encompassing benefits that come. How do you get the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for God's elect, who paid the penalty for their sins so that all who come to Him in faith may know that their sins are forgiven? How do you have the benefit of of a joint inheritance with Christ? How do you have Christ living in you by faith? How do you have the promise of conformity to Christ later? The deliverance from these sins that are killing you and destroying you. How do you have all that promise of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? You have it in communion with the Holy Spirit. And not apart from communion with the Holy Spirit. How do you have the love of God? How do you know the love of God? How do you have confidence that God has loved you and God has made you his own and you may call him your father and you have access to the throne of heaven and at any time of the day or night you may go to God in your present condition and be received if you go according to the truth of the gospel. How do you have that confidence? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given to us in Romans chapter 5. How do we know the love of God with us? It is in communion with the Holy Spirit. How do we know the benefits of Christ's grace to us? It is in communion with the Holy Spirit. They're all three there. And without the communion of the Holy Spirit, the others never happen. They never come to pass. They never make sense. We're simply saying that unless the Holy Spirit does his work, people will not believe upon Christ. They'll not know Christ. They'll not love Christ. They'll not receive any of the benefits of Christ. The Spirit has as his work to apply Christ and to make Christ's grace appropriated to you, applicable to you, received by you, fruitful in you. He is the bond by which Christ effectually binds himself to us. And then the last text in this portion is back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that focuses more specifically on the work of saving in justifying and sanctifying. He has just made a list of sinners, representative sin embodied in sinners, typical of our world. Now remember, the context here is he's warning them about their attitude about each other. They're taking each other to courts of law to get their money. They're suing. Christians are suing Christians to get their money's worth out of them. And he's saying to them, it's not good. And It'd be better to let somebody defraud you than to get into this hassle like this. Your attitude's not right. And then he lists in verse 9 the kinds of sins that this sort of thing illustrates. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers. That means people that with their mouth are always scathingly rebuking, reviling, criticizing, and sometimes blaspheming even the name of Christ. It's interesting in our culture you don't hear much uh, using of the name of Buddha in vain or the name of, of Muhammad in vain. don't hear much of that. Maybe it's just because of our culture, but... You don't hear that. It doesn't naturally come to the hearts of men to do that. The devil doesn't want them particularly get happy about that. Blaspheming the name of Christ is precious to him. Extortioners, none of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. He just listed these vile kinds of sin, homosexuality, every kind of sin almost. And then in verse 11 he says, and such were some of you. 
Some of you, not everybody in the Corinthian church, had these drastic expressions of sinfulness in his life. Some of you did. Well, how in the world did they get to be a people who were called saints and recipients of a letter from an apostle? Well, he tells us. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. But in how were you, was all that done? You were, that was all done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with us, in us, operating upon us. There is Christ effectually applied to us and bound over to us in justification, in sanctification, in washing. We are made right with God legally in Christ's blood. We're no longer held guilty for the sin we committed. Christ has paid for it. Christ has fulfilled the law. We're made right with God in another way. The power of sin is broken so that we are washed. We're seen to be clean. The stain that makes God repulsed at us is gone. We are sanctified. We're set apart for the purposes of God. We're God's children. We're God, the object of God's special affection and God's purpose of blessing. He gives good things to His children and we are increasingly conformed into the image of Christ more and more in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see? But look at that last one. And in the Spirit of our God. How does all that benefit of saving efficacy become mine? How does the grace that is in the name of Christ accrue to me? In the Spirit of our God. The Bible knows nothing of salvation apart from the Spirit. And it knows nothing of a work of the Spirit in salvation apart from Christ. It's all tied intricately together. It is the Spirit applying Christ to God's elect. That's what we've said. Do you see the biblical doctrine there? Just in the text we've read, you can read much more. But I hasten to go to the second part of our sermon. We want to define the work of the Spirit. I want us to have a working definition. And brethren, I reserve the right to add to this later. I think I've got a good working definition, but there's still some text that uh, I'm having a hard time putting them in one of these categories. So if I add one phrase later, just say, well, our pastor's still reading and he's growing too. I trust that this will, be, will go a long way, though, to helping us collate the material in the Holy Spirit. A working definition. And the way we're going to do it is utilizing 2 Corinthians in that section around chapter 3 and in chapter 3, which we read earlier. So turn there and listen to me as I lay before you this lengthy working definition and then start breaking it down. The work of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully to me. The work of the Holy Spirit may be summarized as the ministration of life through righteousness by means of glorifying Christ through preaching resulting in conformity to Christ in the church. The ministration of life through righteousness by means of glorifying Christ through preaching, resulting in conformity to Christ 
in the church. I'm going to say it one more time because some of you are struggling to get all of it and I'm going to help you a bit, but also to grind these words in you because we're going to start breaking it down. The ministration of life through righteousness by means of glorifying Christ through preaching resulting in conformity to Christ in the church. And don't leave off the last part in the church. And by the way, you will notice throughout this study how many times we dovetail and overlap in our study of the doctrine of the church. As we deal with the presence of God in the church, what are we talking about? If we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. So there's our working definition. Let's break it down. And I believe we have time this morning only for the first two. I've divided up this definition into five headings. They are these. We will see the matter of the work of the Spirit. The matter. Second, the basis of that work. The instrument of the work of the Spirit. Fourth, the consequence or result. And fifth, the context. We'll deal with the first two this morning. First of all, the matter of his work. The matter of his work. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. God has our, is our sufficiency, we're told. And he's made us, and the apostle is speaking of himself, and all those who are faithful to apostolic preaching. He has made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. The, the words of the law written on tablets of stone do not give life. But the Spirit who writes that law on the tables of hearts gives life. Now that's in the context of the passage that we've read. You see in verse 7, If the ministration of death written and engraven on stones came with glory so that the children of Israel couldn't see the face of Moses, etc. Verse 8, How shall not rather the ministration of the Spirit be with glory? Now, notice how he establishes the principle of the ministration of life. Remember, that was our first phrase. This is the matter of his work. This is what he's doing. This makes up the stuff of his work. He is ministering life. He is the minister of life, or the administrator of life. And you can see that essentially. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, has he made alive together with Christ? How did God do that? By his Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the administrator of the life that is purchased for God's elect by Christ on the cross. It is not enough, as we have said before, for Christ to have died 2,000 years ago. And brethren, this is the problem in the world. They all know the history of it. But they don't see the significance of the history of it. They have their holidays that do not offend them. Jesus lived. There's more historical evidence for his life and the events of his life than anybody contemporary to it. Most of the ancients have much less written about him in history than Jesus has. Much fewer eyewitnesses who have recorded what they saw. 
They have they can't deny the reality of his history. But they can't see what that has to do with us. And the reason they can't see what it has to do with us is because the work of the Spirit hasn't transpired in their hearts. In effect, it has nothing to do with them yet. From their experience, it is a historical, objective event that seems nice but can't be more than what it looks like on the surface. It looks as though a good man died at the hands of some bad people. And the best thing we can do is debate on who killed him and make it a sort of a political, historical debate. And it depends on where you are, what country you grow up in, whether you were a Nazi or an American as to what you believe about that. But brethren, we who are saved know that this, it's all, that's not the issue at all. Everyone's guilty of the death of Christ in that in a spiritual sense. The nation of Israel delivered him up and they are guilty and God holds them guilty in the Bible. And to deny that, you've got to deny what the scripture says. And I won't hold hands with a rabbi and pretend that I agree with his position that the Jews are not accountable for the death of Christ. I'll not do that in the name of some sort of peace and unity which will, which will be severed and eradicated at the last judgment. I won't do that. I'll hug him and I'll love him and I'll be a buddy and a friend and I'll pray for him and I'll help him when I can. But I'm not going to pretend to agree with him. I'm not going to have my statue laid along the side of his and have Jews and Christians so-called walk underneath it and glorify God for the unity between two peoples who have completely opposite perspectives. Or maybe they don't. Maybe these so-called Christians do not have one God and Father and Spirit and faith and Lord and baptism. Maybe they've got the outward pictures of all this, but in the heart they too have missed the Spirit and His work, and therefore it is okay to throw Christ alongside of Judaism. And it's okay to have Him equal with the Muslims, which will be the next worldwide work. You watch. You watch. You watch who makes a visit eventually. To the Muslim world. You watch who holds out a, a, a piece of olive branch. You watch. All because the work of the Spirit hasn't occurred in making Christ unique and precious in applying life. They're not alive. They're not spiritually living. So Jesus is a historical figure. He's not the vibrant joy and delight of their hearts. He's not real today. He doesn't apply today. We must resort to education to save our children from drugs and sexual appetites that kill them. You know the statistics are already out that education has done nothing to decrease the practice of teenage promiscuity. It has done nothing. The people that do the statistics who promoted the education have admitted it didn't do a thing. We told them it wouldn't. In fact, if they would admit it, morally we all know that the more pictures you show a teenager, the more he's going to do what he's been doing. There are Christians in this room that will testify to such. Christians whose hearts have been saved from that kind of thinking know that if they showed you the stuff, it would develop all in you all manner of lust. How much more those who've never had a work of Christ in their heart. The Spirit's absence has left them comp- just, they're, they're dumbfounded 
at how Jesus could be so important to somebody. But when the Spirit does His work, He's the ministrator of life in Christ Jesus. But you see how He establishes this principle? In verse 7, He contrasts the ministry of the Spirit with the ministration of death. Verse 7 says, if the ministration of death written and engraven on stones. What's he talking about? He's talking about the law of God written on the tables of stone at Sinai by Moses' hand. I mean, for Moses' hands to give to the people of God. God's finger wrote the, book, the law, the ten words, on the stones, gave them to Moses. He took them down to deliver them to the people of God. His presence of God was so glorious that Moses' face shined that the people couldn't even look at it. That was glorious. People didn't even want to talk. They don't speak. Don't let God speak to us. It'll kill us. What a glorious day. The mountain quaked. The thunder rolled. The clouds and the lightnings broke. God's voice scared the people almost to death. And Moses' face was so bright with the reflection of the glory of God whose hinder parts he saw that the people couldn't even look at his face and had to cover him with a veil. That's the ministration of death. But why is it the ministration of death? It's the glory of God. It's the law of God. It's the blessing of God's presence among his people. It's God himself meeting his people in power and in glory and terror. Why is that death? Well, it's also contrasted further in verse 9 with the administration of condemnation. Look at verse 9. He's still speaking of the same administration, the ministry of the letter. It's contrasted to the spirit. The administration of death is contrasted to life. The administration of condemnation. If the administration of condemnation has glory, much rather does the administration of righteousness succeed in glory. He's talking about two things. He's talking about the old covenant, on the one hand, which is the administration of the letter, administration of death, the administration of condemnation, and the new covenant, on the other hand, which is the ministration of the Spirit, the ministration of life, the ministration of righteousness. There's the contrast. And we see something of the matter of life in its connection with the issue of righteousness and condemnation. Here's what we look at. What was it that constituted our spiritual death? And what are we considered to be dead? Ephesians 2 told us you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead to God. Is anybody hearing me here? Those of you whose minds are off in the wonder, come back. It's not spring that much yet. We're still in here. You have all afternoon to go gaze and wonder. Hear me. Stick with me. I'm talking to church members, not visitors. We expect you to have a little more difficulty putting up with the lengthy sermons. You'll get used to it if you keep coming. The ministration of death is linked to the ministration of condemnation. It's linked to the ministration of the letter. It's linked to the ministration of that which could not give life. But the ministration of the Spirit is the ministration of righteousness, the ministration of life. The matter of its work is that he imparts life. You know what the Bible teaches. You must be born of the Spirit or you'll not see the kingdom of God. He must regenerate you. He must generate life in you because what you got from your daddy and your mommy is death. 
that which is born of flesh is flesh, and flesh is doomed to die. The wages of sin is death. In the flesh you cannot please God. That which is after the flesh, the mind of the flesh, is death. So the Spirit of God must impart life. And that's the, that makes up the substance of what he's about. He's moving in the world, giving life to people that are dead. He's waking the dead. The hour shall come, and now is, when they that are dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Well, how do they hear the voice of the Son of God? It's the Spirit of God speaking in the heart's ears. And he's awakening the dead spiritually just as really and actually as Jesus Christ awakened the dead Lazarus from his tomb and called him forth. And you see the fruits of that raising. The Spirit of God is about the business of ministering life. That is the substance of his work. He is the administrator of life. But to explain that, we go to the second part of our definition. The basis. We've seen the matter. Now look at the basis. He administers life through righteousness. That's the way we've defined it. This is biblical concept, but I want to prove it to you. The way to life is through righteousness. It is not apart from righteousness. This is not an electric experience by which an invisible God comes floating through a room and somebody sitting uh, eating, chewing chewing gum, watching the telly, all of a sudden is alive. This is not administered out of context. This is not a, 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 a de novo experience that has no connection with anything else. This is not just a, a wind that blows across. Now, you might get that impression from John 3 in which Jesus said the wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound thereof, but you cannot tell where it came from or whether it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. So somebody might respond, hey, that's great. All right. So first of all, God, it's up to God. He's sovereign, and he's going to do that to anybody he wants to. So that leaves me off the hook. I'm going home. If God wants to make me alive, the Holy Spirit will come, and he'll regenerate me. That's what Jesus said. It's like the wind. How can I control the wind, Pastor? I'm doing nothing. Why waste my time in church? I've got a whole Sunday off. It's my only real day off a week. I'm going to the lake. If God were, surely that won't have any effect at all on God's regenerating me. When the Spirit comes like the wind, He'll blow on me wherever I am. God can find me. He'll save me. There won't be any problem. I have no duty. In the same chapter 3 of John, the condemnation that is on men is this, that they love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil and would not come to the light that their deeds may be made manifest. He that believeth not on the Son of God is condemned already. His condemnation is not in the fact that the Spirit of God somehow didn't blow on him. He's not condemned because he hasn't been regenerated. His condemnation is what makes him need to be regenerated. He is condemned because he doesn't believe on Christ. 
Because he's not put his life in the hands of Christ. Because he's not bowed to Christ. Because he's not obeyed Christ. He's not believed the gospel. Turned away from his confidence in himself. In a land in which the young men of our day are, are led to be macho and they think that their power and their strength is in their muscles and their, the images of beer drinking and the whole bit of bathing suits in which most of us guys wouldn't want to be on the same beach with those guys. Uh, they put that image up because that's the goal. And so pumping iron and the exercise fad and all this wild craziness of getting bodies into Adonis shape, this return to the old Platonic Greek world, all this goulash that we're living in, which got a lot of guys thinking, you know, i got to be Mr. Big, Mr. Strong. i got to be Mr. Tough. I don't need to submit. If, if I don't depend on myself, I'm not a man. You see, you look around this church, if some of you are trying to be Mr. Macho, you look around some men in this place, you're not looking at squirrels and, and wimps. These guys, though, are men who regularly experience the process of bowing before God and saying, Lord, I'm helpless. Lord, I can't make a thing happen. I, can't, I don't know how to make a living for my family. I don't know how to raise my kids. I don't know how to love my wife. I don't know how to talk. I don't know how to act. I don't know anything. I'm an, I'm an ignorant Weakling, but Lord, you're strong. Give the grace you promised. And those men stand with stature. And godly women love to marry those kind of men because they see in them much more security than they would see in Mr. Macho, who's depending on these fading muscles for their security. Well, you haven't believed on Christ. You've not deterred from your dependence on yourself. You've not understood that you are not righteous and you're filthy in God's eyes and you're condemned and you've not bowed to Jesus and claimed his promises to you and asked him to come and save you and have mercy on you. That's why you're condemned. You've not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's where you sit today, mister. If you've not come to Christ, you're condemned. And that's what makes you dead. Quickly turn to Romans chapter 5. This simple statement is clear in the Scripture. Romans 5.21 Contrasting the situation of the world apart from Christ's coming and dying on the cross and rising again with the situation after his coming or with his coming, dying on the cross and rising again. Verse 21 of Romans 5 says, As sin reigned in death. Sin reigned in death. That's the condition of the world apart from Christ. What are we saying? Well, when Adam sinned, the human race sinned and fell. Fell from its state of innocence. Fell from its relationship to God. Fell from its access to God. Lost everything. And the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. They did and they did. They died. They didn't physically drop dead and turn to dust that day. They lost their communion with God. They lost the source of their life. They were separated from God and no longer had vital fellowship with God. They were dead spiritually. They were condemned by their guilt, having committed sin, and they were condemned to a life of the power of sin. Sin reigned. And how do we see the rule of sin? How does sin show its power? How does sin reign? In death. Death reigned. 
from Adam to Moses, everybody, even those that didn't sin the way Adam sinned, even those who sinned because they were born in sin, Adam wasn't, death reigned anyway. Death had the final last word. Sin reigned, sin reigned, sin ruled, sin had the last word out in death. That's the way it was. But, even so, verse 21 says, might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How does grace reign? Grace reigns through righteousness. In the old way, it was sin that reigned. In the new way, grace reigns. But it's not grace apart from righteousness. It's not that God says, well, it doesn't matter how you live. I'm just going to change my approach to men. I'm going to start letting people into heaven even if they're wretches. That's not the point. Grace now reigns rather than sin reigning. But grace reigns through righteousness. And it's unto eternal life. Grace reigns to life. Sin reigns to death. Grace reigns to life. Sin reigned to death. Absolute contrast. But sin reigns to death, uh, uh, to death by man's guilt and God's judgment. Grace reigns to life by righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that extra phrase is what makes the difference. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has satisfied the law which Adam broke. Christ has removed the guilt of all who believe on Him. Now, all who come to Christ and believe on Christ live because grace reigns in the place of sin and they're made alive in Christ. And that's the work of the Spirit. He is the minister, the administrator of life. But He does it through righteousness. The Spirit brings us from a state of condemnation from sin and death to a state of righteousness, blessing, and grace unto life. He is the administrator of life. But how does he administer life? He applies Jesus Christ. It's all through Jesus Christ. He brings the blessing of Christ's death for sinners, his resurrection and power over the grave, which is the fruit of sin, the wages of sin, and he applies that to Christians in whom life now is seen. He that has the Son of God has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. It's not merely that Jesus comes and sets up residence in my heart. Brethren, that's why we do not invite people to say, let Jesus into your heart. The Bible's invitation is not, those, is, not, is not in those terms. Lord Jesus, come and live in my heart. That is not biblical terminology. Why is it not biblical terminology? Because that doesn't cover the issue. The issue is you're guilty of sin. God is against you. You must get right with God. And you must get rid of your sin in order to do that. But how can you? If you never sinned again after this moment, how do you take care of all you've already done? How do you ever make it up to God? Some of you in a marriage, in a church we learn this. What does Paul mean when he says, kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake forgave you? 
you know that in, in marriage, if you don't forgive, you cannot have a marriage. Not anything decent. It's a hell on earth. You know that. But what do you got to forgive? You got to forgive somebody that has hurt you directly. You got to forgive somebody that hurts you regularly, disappoints you, blows it, fails you, and in such a way they could never change what they've done to you. They can never go back and take the words back they said in haste. They can never go back and retrace the years they've wasted. They can never go back and make up for the financial chaos they produced. They can never go back and take back the slap or the yell or the blasphemous word. There's nothing they can do to change it. You forgive them. And your refusal to do so dooms both of you to misery. And it dooms you not to be forgiven of God. But what does God do? You can't go back and change anything. Lord, I sinned. Well, great. We already knew that. Big deal. You've admitted you're wrong. I already knew you were wrong. What are you going to do about it? You have a debt to pay. How are you going to pay it? You can't. What's the debt? The law gave the debt. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. How are you going to escape? Do you understand? You're stuck, man. You're under a powerful dictate of God whose law says, and it cannot be changed, the soul that sins, it shall die. How do you escape eternal death? Adam is sifted out of the garden, the gates closed behind him, flaming swords with angels stand there at least before the flood, apparently until the flood came and that was still there. There was, there was no way he could get back in that place where he had sweet communion with God. A constant reminder to the pre-Diluvian world of God's judgment on that thing they did. All they did was eat one little piece of fruit and it's not, it's not like they were living in perversion. One little piece of fruit shut them out of paradise. How do you get back into paradise? How do you recover what was lost? How do you get back to God? You can do nothing to change what you've done. You can't go put the piece of fruit back on the fruit and get it out of your tummy. and remove. You can't undo what you did. You can't undo your sexual sin. You can't go back and find all those partners and put it right. You can't change. You can't undo what stuff is worn on your sleeve and on your face today and your shame and embarrassment. You can't go back and change it. How do you get right with God? How do you pay that debt? You've got to die. You've got to be separated from God. There's nothing that can help you except there's one that has paid the debt. That's why all this language comes through Jesus Christ. There is a way of righteousness. It is God's righteousness. It is God's perfect, perfect righteousness, and it's God's way of giving you righteousness. It is not your own. It is not your contribution to salvation. It is not your doing good. It is not your changing. It is God bringing that righteousness to you through His Son who was righteous for you, who paid the penalty of your failure to be righteous, and in whom you are counted righteous, and by whom whose Spirit is in you, you're becoming more and more righteous like Him. I want to summarize this by directing your attention to Romans 8, verse 1. We're in the middle of our sermon, but we've made the point. The Spirit is imparting life. Saints are alive. 
They're alive to the things of God because they're alive to God. But in verse 1 of chapter 8 of Romans, we see the terminology of condemnation again used in the same context of the ministration of the Spirit of life. Verse 1 of Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now, we think the better manuscripts leave out that second clause, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But it doesn't matter because that clause is included in verse 4, so the, it applies in both places. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus? Why are you no longer debted, indebted to pay the debt of death? Why have you been freed from that debt? For, in verse 2... The law, and see, he uses the term law here. He plays on the word. It was the law written on the tables of stone that doomed me to death because I blew it. But the law of the spirit of life. That's the other law. That's the law that's canceled out the previous law. That's the law that satisfied the other. The law that says to the other, you have no more claim on this man. But notice. It is the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Not just in itself out here. It is all linked with Messiah who died for the sinner, who is raised from the dead, who intercedes for the sinner. He is applied to Christ. And it's made me free from the law of sin and death. That's a law that is at work in every man ever born in this world since Adam. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, not outside of Christ Jesus, has made me free from the law of sin and death. Read further. For what the law, and here's the old law, could not do, the letter, it killed. Why? It could not do what it ought to do. It was weak through the flesh. The law, which was unto life, could not give life because my flesh, my sinful self, broke that law. And then the law had to be had to be satisfied, which said, if you break me, you die. The law couldn't give me life. It was ordained to life, but it was weak. Not in itself, but in the flesh of a sinful man who wouldn't keep it and couldn't keep it. Alright? God, what the law couldn't do, God did. How? Sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin. That's why Jesus came to deal with sin. That's why Hebrews 9 says when he comes a second time he won't be coming for sin. He's not coming the next time to deal with sin. He already did that. God sent his son for sin. Okay? And what did he do when he sent him for sin? In Christ, God condemned sin in the flesh. Here's the twist. Sin condemned me. Actually, the law condemned me because I sinned. But now God has condemned sin. I summarize it by saying this. There are two aspects to condemnation that we must see as integral in the Spirit ministering life. The reason you're alive this morning, if you're alive in Christ, is that the Spirit has applied the fruits of Christ to you at this point. Listen. The one aspect is you're condemned as guilty. It's the condemnation of guilt. You sin, God holds you accountable, and he condemns you judicially. You are guilty of sin. You are liable to punishment. You're guilty. Condemned. That's the obvious one, and that's the one we most often think of. But there's another aspect to condemnation. God not only 
condemns your guilt or condemns your sin by holding you guilty, he also passed judgment on man by assigning him a life under the power of sin. So that not only did his one-time sin bring him liable to eternal death, but that sin is now living and thriving in him, and he can't lose himself from it and quit it. It now has power over him, and he loves to sin. God has passed judgment on man in two ways. He has held him guilty, and he's consigned him in his judgment to being under the bondage of sin. That is part of the judgment. Wasn't just one mistake he made that he could start changing. Once he did that, he lost everything he had. His integrity, his power, his ability to please God. Now he that is in the flesh cannot please God because he is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can he be. God has consigned you as a sinner to being in bondage to sin. You must break the law of God. You can't help him. Huh? But, verse 1 said, there is no condemnation out of you. And that includes both times. You're no longer held guilty for the sin you've committed. You're free from that. Oh, but pastor, what about the sin I keep committing? The spirit of life in Christ Jesus so applies Christ to you that he not only breaks the condemning power of legal restrictions and requirements that you've broken, he also breaks the reigning power of sin in you so that you no longer are ruled by sin. And both are true in Christ Jesus for whose sake and by, um, in whose merits the Holy Spirit is working. It is in that context that you can stand and say, I live. You're, you're alive from the dead. Your death now, your physical death, is simply the last means of chastening and removing the last remains of the leftovers for the curse of sin. We'll, we could deal with that later, uh, and it probably ought to be dealt with in Romans chapter 8, because uh, it's a logical question that Paul answers later in this chapter. But what, what, what the Spirit is doing in administrating life, he's administrating it by dealing with sin condemnation for sin and the condemnation of being under the present power of sin. How does he do that? He has Christ's blood to bring and sprinkle on the doorpost of your house so that when the death angel passes by, he doesn't come into your house because the blood of the Lamb is on the doorpost of your heart, as it were, so that God passes over you as he did the ancient Israelites in Goshen. The Spirit of God is applying nothing other than, nothing less than, and nothing more than Christ and his work and his person and his merits and his fruits. And when he applies Christ to you, you become alive. Do you see that? And brethren, maybe, I didn't ask you if you feel it. And I tell you, this is the way that you thrive in your faith, not by waiting till you feel this, but by going back to these texts and understanding what Christ has done. You say, but Pastor, that doesn't prove it. Yeah, if you understand it, that's evidence the Spirit has applied it. You wouldn't comprehend it if not. You could not receive this stuff. It wouldn't make any sense at all to you if the Spirit of God hadn't done His work. It would be foolishness to you, a stumbling block to you. But when you read the words in verse 1 of chapter 8 of Romans, there's no condemnation. What happens in your heart? All you think is hope for me. There's reason to get up today and serve Christ. I can sing about that. I can pray to a God who is not holding me guilty. 
He must be willing to answer my prayers now. The whole 8th chapter of Romans goes on and deals with that. Who shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? He, nothing can because we've been so united with Him and bound together with Him by the work of the Spirit that nothing but life can be spoken accurately of us. Christians sleep in a sense they don't die. That's why the Bible takes that little euphemism and starts using it in the New Testament. Not because they don't want to face the reality of physical death, but it's a good way to speak of the Christian's death. It's just the last curtain through which we pass, ridding ourselves of the final vestiges of our remaining corruptions, which, which we hate, which we grieve over, which we long to be rid of. And it is in the spirit of life applying Christ to you that you have that confidence and that hope. You remember in Second Corinthians 3, he said, Having therefore such a hope, in verse 12, Having therefore such a hope, the word hope is saturated in the thinking of a Christian who's been made alive in Christ. Because that hope has been gendered to us because we look at what Christ has done, the Spirit has made it make sense to us, He's applied it to our hearts, we believe it, and that's where our confidence lies. It's not in the way we feel when we wake up in the morning. It is in what we believe when we read our Bibles and when we hear preaching. It's what we act on that God has done and God has said. May God give us His Spirit so that we may believe what is said and act on it. May God's Spirit make the gospel precious to the heart. May God's Spirit bind Christ to us in such a way that when we read it, that'll be enough. That we can live on it and preach it. Brethren, everything in your life, everything you people are struggling with, everything that's bothering you is answered here. Your lack of ability to pray, your dryness, your discouragement over continuing sin, your fears of the future, your fears of death, your wonderment about your kids, your worrying about tomorrow, your frustration over difficulty, the pain of a sick body, all of it is answered here. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He administers life. And brethren, this is my charge to you as a church. Act like people who are alive to God. When you find your body telling your spirit to sleep, curse God and die, speak back to your body and tell your soul and your body to bless the Lord. Get some gumption of discipline about you and become man. Quit waiting for Pastor Allen to goose you a bit in the spirit so you feel a little bit good. Don't show up at this place at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning having not given any labor at all to preparation in your soul. Don't do that. You're alive in Christ. That's not fitting for you. Don't wake up and spend ten minutes in a new day without saying, Thank you, Lord. Don't do it. You're not being hypocritical. It's, well, I don't feel like saying thank you. Well, remember the truth. And if you can feel anything other than thanksgiving, I don't know what kind of person you are. One of your problems is you're not reading your Bible and you're not listening to what's being preached here very well. And some of you keep living in the same old doldrum because you just don't believe what the Bible says about you and your condition in Christ. 
or at least you barely believe it. Well, you say, Pastor, I admit it, you're right, but how do I get it? Cry for greater measures of the Spirit. Hasn't God said, if my children ask, I will give them the Spirit? You say, well, I asked, but he didn't. That won't wash with me. Either he did and you didn't like what he did, or you haven't asked enough. That promise holds true, brethren. Don't grow weary in well-doing. May God help us to comprehend in our minds the life of the Spirit of Christ. It'll impregnate our worship. It'll make our witnessing stronger. It won't allow people to walk in this place and go out and say, Well, I wonder what they believe. Well, I didn't, I didn't think that's very inspiring service. I know nothing. These people are dull and dry. You don't have to pump this up. Learn by the Spirit of God what the Gospel says and lay hold on it and act accordingly. The Spirit administers life. May that be an increasing reality among us and among our testimony. We have much more to say. I pray God will help us retain this until we do. Let's pray. Our Father, please help us make these things clear. Teach us these things. Lord, even as we hear them and we get little flickers of light and bits of charges of enthusiasm in our hearts because of the penetration of truth barely able to reach us. We confess, even as that happens, we are so dull of hearing. So, Lord, in keeping with what all you've done for our souls, in your Son's work for us, work it in our souls by your Spirit working in us. Lord, our God, have mercy on us in the name of your Son. Remove the hindrances and give us grace that we may pursue the Savior we love and love the Savior we pursue and know increasingly the joy and the peace of believing and be filled with hope by the power of your Spirit. O holy God, do not leave us orphans. Come to us and make us know the fruits of Christ in our souls, welling up, spilling over, that you may be glorified in us. Hear our plea in Jesus' name. Amen.